Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by M&M's Hazelnut. Watching a movie or a TV show is nothing without a bag of your favorite treats. Take your treats to the next level with the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies. They are a delicious combo of hazelnut spread and milk chocolate in every bite-sized piece, delivering a side of indulgence that's all its own. I love these. You got to get them for the next time you hit the movies or watch one of your favorite shows. Go Hazelnutty and try the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies today. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and today on the show... I was joined by Allison Herman. We talked a little bit about the TCAs, specifically about Amazon and some of their new shows that they have coming up and this little bit of a turning point there for Amazon Prime Video or whatever it is you call it. The thing that kind of prompted this was, I don't know what to call it. I don't know what to call Amazon. I don't know if they care about how many people are watching their shows or how big their shows are. Obviously, they care, but unlike Netflix... And the idea that, oh, Netflix is spending all this money on original programming. There's a bubble if they don't hit certain subscriber numbers. I don't think that applies to Amazon. Unlike HBO, where they're merging with a huge communications company, technology company, and AT&T, and starting a new streaming network under their own banner and expanding how much content they're making, Amazon's not really going through any kind of profound changes on the back end or in the forward facing. They do seem to be moving towards a new era though. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that with Allison and also just talk a little bit about the the nature of TV cancellations in an era where there's so much stuff. Why does stuff have to be canceled at all? And getting into the emotions of that. So that was interesting. I talked to Kate Nibbs a little bit about some of the history behind Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Kate's a sort of a, a, a Manson murder expert and you can read her piece on TheRinger.com going into some of the context and the history around the Manson murders, which obviously plays a huge part in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That is a spoilery discussion, as is my discussion with Lindsay Zolatz, who came on to talk to me a little bit about her piece that she wrote for The Ringer that's up today. And we also talked about 99 Music Week, which is also launching today on The Ringer on Monday. It's awesome. It's a ranking of the singles and the albums from the year. We have tons of great videos and pieces on the site. We'll be making the case for a bunch of the different albums. So stay tuned to The Ringer all week long. Let's get into my conversation with Allison about TCAs and Amazon. What's up, Allison? It's kind of a slow news week in terms of TV shows that are de- you know, premiering, debuting that we need to drop takes on. August is going to be nuts, though, because we have Mindhunter, Succession. Glow. uh, Glow, Gemstones. So there's a lot of stuff we'll be talking about in the coming weeks. I wanted to have Allison on. We also have Kate Nibbs and Lindsay Zolads on later in the show to talk a little Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and 99 Music Week. But I wanted to talk to Allison a little bit about TCAs. TCAs are sort of— Greatest time of the year. Well, I mean, they're they're certainly the most tweeted about— conference of television critics in America. The most inbox annihilating event in the country. So for people who don't know, Andy and I have talked about it before, the TCAs. Why don't you give me your bullet points on what the TCAs are? Sure. I mean, it's a somewhat outdated concept in which all television critics in America theoretically congregate in a hotel ballroom for two weeks twice a year to be put up to date on the upcoming uh you know, the January 1 forecast the second half of the TV year. The summer one is supposed to forecast the fall. Okay. Obviously, this is both a little bit outdated from the perspective of, like, you don't need to have people physically in a room to disseminate information anymore, but also just, like, the schedule of TV no longer works such that it's it's kind of an arbitrary you know, right. splitting up. Like, right. we're gonna we're about to distribute the TCA awards and they have the same thing going as the Emmys where it's like, wait, like, what's even eligible? Sure. What period are we covering? But they are useful in that it puts critics in a room with executives and you get sent, like, screeners for a lot of upcoming shows. You get trailers. You get people talking about what they're planning. You get executives talking about their overall strategy. So that's probably and what... And you get the frisson. You get the intellectual salon of being, like... Of hundreds of people with their laptops <laughs> open slacking their bosses right. while also taking notes. Dorothy Parker's vicious circle is back. Um, the TCA is also st- like functions as a sort of state of the union for both specific networks and some of these uh, executives giving 
bro- like broad television State of the Union speeches, like well, Landgraf often Landgraf, does. Yeah, yeah. So, so John the, Landgraf from FX, yeah. The infamous peak TV speech was an address to TCA and FX's annual tally of exactly how many scripted series are being produced for what kinds of outlets is always like a presentation at TCA. So the thing I wanted to talk to you about today is Amazon. So we don't normally spend a lot of time talking about what is Amazon? What's their strategy? Who like who are they appealing to? Are these shows successful? Are these shows good? Because I think unlike saying maybe Netflix or HBO, there isn't as much uh, sort of like train spotting going on with with Amazon as there is with those other companies. Because if HBO has a huge series of failure shows or they, that these new streaming networks bite into their Apple, they could be in trouble in some way. Or Netflix, is there a Netflix bubble? That's what I talked about with Lucas Shaw. But with Amazon, it's like, it's kind of like second guessing a utility company at this point. Like there will always sort of be this need, this underlying need for the superstore that they are. So this video product that they offer is really almost like an act of, not quite corporate benevolence, but it's a it's a loss leader for them to, to some extent. Well, and it's a weird thing to say about a slate that includes a literal billion-dollar Lord of the Rings project, yes. but it's weirdly lower stakes. It's like Amazon, the company, is not going to live or die on the success of Amazon's entertainment division, whereas, like, Netflix is only Netflix, especially now that they've pivoted away from the DVD and then licensing other people's content. Yes. It's like Netflix increasingly is Netflix this original. This huge spend that Netflix is doing on original content is the make or break thing for this company. Now, they could sustain themselves for years to come even if they never have another um, Stranger Things or whatever, but they will still be in the making content and hoping people subscribe business the same way HBO is. And also, there's the fact that Amazon is somehow even less transparent than Netflix. Like, because Netflix is a publicly traded company, they literally have to come forward and be like, this is how many subscribers we got for our entertainment streaming service, and here's how that compares to our goals. And Amazon, it's like, we know how many people subscribe to Prime, but Prime can mean two-day shipping in addition to being able to watch Fleabag. It means a lot of things. So we don't even know how many people are specifically subscribing to or patronizing the streaming content division of Amazon in general, which means, like, the ratings are even more obscure. So Jennifer Salke and her um, colleagues, who are the heads of Amazon, talked at TCAs about how they don't even plan on doing the, like, Netflix thing, which we already find kind of frustratingly Where it's like, when we have a touchdown, we're going to do a touchdown dance. We're going to do an end zone dance. Yeah, or like, when we have a touchdown, we'll give, like, a number and then not really clarify what the number means, or even when we do, the number doesn't mean the same thing as, like, what Nielsen's numbers mean, but Amazon is like, we're just literally not going to give numbers at all. So we find Amazon at a little bit of a crossroads, to the extent that any company that's also, like, brooms and, and you know, like, bulk t-shirts and also, like, televisions or anything you really want to buy could, that could be at a crossroads. Obviously, the thing on the horizon that everybody is talking about is the Lord of the Rings show that is coming I don't know if it's coming in 2020. I mean, no one knows. We know they have the writer's room. We know they've started casting. Yes. It's kind of under lock and key. But also, I guess Amazon is never not in a transitional period. I feel like every time they make a public statement, they're like, we're rebranding or something. And it's like, your brand was never clear enough in the first place for you to retool this much. Well, I think we could could ascribe the, the, the sort of changing of the guard here partly to shows like Catastrophe and Fleabag and Transparent coming to an end. We, we at least think Fleabag is coming to an end. I think Jennifer Salke said, never say never, or like I'm, I'm holding out hope that she turns back around to the camera and wants to say a few more things. But you've got Transparent ending, Catastrophe ended its run, Fleabag ended its run. And then they've kind of brought in this new slate of shows. And that includes Lord of the Rings. It includes Modern Love, which is an adaptation of the long-running New York Times uh, column. And this show would be an anthology series starring, among other people, Tina Fey, John Slattery. Uh, who, who else is in this show? Uh, Kristen Milioti. Kristen Milioti, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, a lot of people in that. And that is, it looks like just like a, a kind of adult rom-com anthology show. 
Yeah, it looks like they're calm. doing the Romanoffs, which, speaking of shows that are ending, they oh, announced right. that both the Romanoffs and uh, the Ruffin show, oh my God. Too old to die young. Yes, How I'm dare so you? I'm so sorry. How dare you? This is was that... a calculated act of aggression <laughs> yeah. towards Chris Ryan. No, but they're they're winding down both those projects, which, I mean, obviously the Romanoffs probably has some like extra baggage attached to it with like the Weinstein and everything going on around Matthew Weiner. But also, like I think the Ruffin thing is the signal that they don't really plan on She says she's been texting weird? with Nicholas, though. Really? Yeah, she, not that they're going to bring it back, but she's like, they asked basically, did you hide too old to die young? Because, the, the, you know, like the idea was basically is if you, one of the issues with Amazon, I think, is when you go to Amazon.com, you might get a banner. I think you get a banner that says like, oh, you know, this is on Prime Video right now. But you actually have to look pretty hard to find what's on it. And you would have to really look hard <laughs> to find too old to die young. Which is fine for someone like me. You know, it's like, it's just like me and my other tool to die young heads. We have our cult and we have our leader which in Refn. But I guess she said at the TCA, as Jennifer Salky said, you know, we really tried to market that to Europe where Nicholas is very big. <laughs> so that's why you didn't see any. So we didn't even try in the United States. Is but what apparently it's all good. They're still texting. So, you know, you never know what you could get from Nicholas Winding Refn on Amazon in the future. Some other projects that Amazon has coming up soon. The Boys, which is a show from uh, Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen, uh, which is kind of a raunchy revisionist superhero show. Carnival Row, uh, an Orlando Bloom kind of, looks kind of steampunky. Uh, it was originally developed by Guillermo del Toro, um, but now is being run, I think, by Travis Beecham, who did the second Pacific Rim, if I remember correctly. Yeah, if I have any other Penny Dreadful heads out there mm-hmm. in the watch audience, it, it looks to be scratching a similar itch. Would you say that you are a Penny Dreadful head? Oh, extremely. It is maybe the most underrated TV show of the last five years. How about years, this? But... Dr- Dreadhead. There you go. That's why they pay you the big bucks, <laughs> There you Chris. go. Um... A Tim Gunn, Heidi Klum show, which kind of falls in the uh, sort of category of the Grand Tour, which was the, uh, shoot, what was that BBC show called? Uh, Top Gear. Top Gear. So it's the original Top Gear hosts. Once they left uh, Top Gear, they have a show called the Grand Tour. I can't believe it's not Project Runway. And Heidi Klum have a show called Making the Cut. And in the same vein, Blake Lively has a show coming that is set in the world of high fashion. A fictional show, but set in the world of high fashion. Okay. So they're working with... I guess what they're, what, you know, I'm trying to figure out like what's the best way to describe their slate. Is it high and low? Is it, I, I think it's almost like, to me, it feels almost CBS for streaming. There's like gleaming, shiny products in every like conceivable department from reality to competition to comedy to epic, you know, serialized storytelling to even, you know, superhero genre stuff. And of course, Jack Ryan coming back in season two with, a season set in Venezuela, no less. Um, All right. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could have a meme of Allison's face when I said that. I Would you think it's fair to say they're pivoting from art house to popcorn here? They always say they're doing that, but then I was just browsing their up, in development and upcoming shows Wikipedia page, which is quite the document. <laughs> and, you know, they'll, they'll say stuff like that, but then... You know, the, they're still in business with the Paladinos, obviously, and they're happy to get awards. So the Paladinos just optioned Ninth Street Women, which is this, like, nonfiction doorstop about female artists in the 50s in New York and, like, struggling. As part of, like, the Maisel Expanded Universe? Yeah, or? I, part of me is just, like, they could just do that for, like, the next season of Mrs. Maisel. Yeah. I don't really understand why they're doing But, you know, they're still happy to bankroll that kind of thing. They definitely have the most impressive, I would say, press release collection uh-huh. of any streaming network. Like, I don't know if you remember. <laughs> Shout out to Brian Phillips, but the Tong Wars, the Wong Kar Wai oh show dude. they said they were doing. I know. Which I think it's safe to say they're not. But, like, I almost feel like Hashtag we don't even release have— release the Tong Wars. <laughs> God, release the Wong Kar Wai cut. <laughs> yeah. But I almost feel like we don't even know what Amazon is ch- gonna be because they still feel in the process of developing and eventually releasing these super high-profile projects. Yeah. And they've said, Salky has said specifically, that they don't plan on being Netflix. They don't want to do the, even though they probably could match Netflix dollar for dollar, they don't want to do the all things to all people. Right. We're just going to spend the money and have spend the money and have one of every single conceivable kind of show, but I also don't think they've narrowed down a specific brand where it's the only thing I can identify here is their algorithm, so to speak, is either stars or world building, and it's one or the other, and hopefully both. But 
you know, they have Lord of the Rings, they have Good Omen, they have, you know, the Carnival Row seems like a world-building show. They have, they have a renewed expanse for season five. They were airing season four. They saved that from sci-fi. So those are all sort of in the Find Me the Next Game of Thrones directive from Jeff Bezos. Like, that's that, that category. And then there's things like Modern Love where it's Anne Hathaway on a television show. There's the Blake Lively television show. There is, if there is a person out there and they've made deals with Connie Britton and Forrest Whitaker and Lena Waithe, which maybe are not like mega stars, but are at least names and faces to attach to projects. Well, and we even even mentioned Underground Railroad. Like they have a Barry Jenkins project that's happening. They have Utopia, which is a Jillian Flynn thing. They have... um, you know, crazy animated comedy that's executive produced by the guy from BoJack Horseman and created by the writer who did that um, crazy dementia episode that yeah. they did, like, which looks very heady. yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it's starring Rosa Salazar, a.k.a. Alita Battle Angel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shout out to Moe's. Yeah, like, they, they have a lot of weird niche stuff, and yet they keep saying they don't really want to do that anymore, but they also don't want to be Netflix. It's just... Such a weird miasma. Yeah, the two things that they don't have that Netflix has is A, volume. B, you know, like you can spend the entire day or the entire month like searching through Netflix and never see the same thing twice. And they also have things, they don't have, they don't have Friends of the Office. They don't have the 300 episode show that you would spend all day with Amazon on in the background playing. Now, they may have stuff in their library that they have access to or that you can access via any of the subscriptions that you might have within Prime Video, but nothing that jumps off the page like that. Yeah, it still feels very ancillary. And the thing that felt very telling to me was like for the longest time, like now you can punch in amazon.com slash video and get like a sort of facsimile of the Netflix browsing mm-hmm. screen. But for a while, you didn't even have that. And no, it you was had to just, go to amazon.com, you go up to the upper left-hand corner and like find the drop-down menu for Prime Video. And then you would find it. And or, even then, Originals is only one one carousel. Or you would type in like transparent and it would be like, do you want transparent bubble wrap? It would, it's just, yeah. it's And then really you're like, God damn it, how did I wind up buying bubble wrap? I didn't even know I needed <laughs> I this. I mean, that's probably part of their plan all along. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's just, they haven't yet made Prime feel either like distinct from the rest of Amazon or like a full presence. But again, it's also like, it's not like they have to. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm curious to see where it will go, but I still feel like we're, you know, maybe even years out from, like, fully understanding what Amazon is going to be. Yeah, and I think one of the issues here is that because we don't necessarily understand the metrics for success at some of these places. Yes, I am teeing you up. Okay. <laughs> or go off with Because we do not understand the metrics for success for some of these places like Netflix, like Amazon, some of the programming decisions can be a little bit confusing. Now, some of it might be the people who are making it no longer want to make it, or the star wants to go do other things, whatever. And then at sometimes it can just seem sort of arbitrary. And in the case of something that happened with Netflix this last week, it did seem like almost a little bit like, tw- you know, twisting the knife a little bit. And that is, I'm referring to the cancellation of Allison's beloved show, Tuca and Birdie. As you may recall, Tuca and Birdie was one of the recipients of my mid-year TV awards. I loved the kiss it. Kiss of death, maybe. Oh, oh no. God. I mean, yeah, I guess Fleabag's <laughs> over. Okay. I should, I'm not going to go check From that. now on, it's just like all, like, you're just going to have to say, like, The Ranch. You know, it's just like yeah. whatever you don't Listen, like. Listen, the other two is another season, so at least we have that to look forward <laughs> yes. to. But, um, yeah, so Tugan Birdie was a show I and a lot of other critics really, really loved and hit that sweet spot of, you know, like, People love Ali Wong. People love Tiffany Haddish. People love sensitively told creative stories that touch on themes that are not frequently addressed in serialized television. Sure. All those things. And I feel like the traditional understanding of how Netflix's renewal or cancellation decision works is that they have enough cash on hand that they can have critical acclaim and popular, you know, reception. And as long as you have one of those two, you get to continue. And it's only when you have neither of those two that you get canceled. So something like Gypsy. Sure. Like, a total came and went, didn't make any cultural impact. Clearly no one also watched it and they didn't want to pay Naomi Watts for another 10 episodes. So that, you know, shuffled off pretty quietly. Yeah. This was a thing that had enough of at least the critical claim. Like, yes, I understand that there is not an audience of millions for like a cartoon where a bird's like left boob hops off her body and takes a day off because of sexual harassment. Like, it's a weird, you know, <laughs> Why did I just show? Yeah. But 
I think, you know, it's obvious antecedent is BoJack Horseman. And as a lot of people have been pointing out, BoJack was a pretty slow roll. Like, people didn't really— I remember critics not really liking the first season. It was only when season two happened that people were like, I would oh, say that great. to the extent that I engage with animated culture, which is limited. It's well, we docu- know, yes. well documented that I have a limited relationship to talking drawings. I will say— Part of the enjoyment of them is having, like, a big batch of them to kind of, like, peruse rather than, like, waiting for this new season of something or, like, checking it out for the first time. BoJack's a perfect example, like you're saying. It's, like, it's a show that if you give it a chance, you're really happy that there's, like, 20, 30 episodes of it rather than, oh, like, I'm still getting used to it. You know, like— Yeah, and And I think Tucker and Birdie probably would have benefited from the same— Runway. Yeah, Bojack was a slow snowball. Like, the first season wasn't really received that well. The second and third, I feel like, were rapturously received by critics. And then it was after that that, like, other friends of mine started to be like, I've started watching this. So I feel like it was uh, it was given the space to grow. And, you know, I don't think we've actually said this yet. Netflix canceled Tuca and Birdie after a single season. And... This has been a case where the creators, Lisa Hanawalt and other people who have been involved with the show, have been very public that this was not what they wanted. They wanted to continue. They would like to maybe go to another network, although we now know Netflix doesn't want other streaming networks to pick up its canceled shows. Yeah, because One Day at a Time wound up on a network I've literally never heard of before. Yeah, and that was literally because they wanted it for CBS All Access. Netflix put the kibosh on that, and then CBS just, like, owns this other network, and they were like, okay, we're going to throw it on here. But, you know— there's one day Netflix is going to cancel a show and a company that's owned by Netflix is going to pick it back up. Again. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, but, like, it's interesting that you bring up one day at a time because I feel like that was another example of this era of Netflix as either, like, the savior of critically acclaimed canceled shows like Arrested Development or just a place that has, like, so much going on that it can afford to make multiple seasons of, for example, like, Lady Dynamite, Maria Bamford's sort of uh, autobiographical sitcom is extremely fucking weird and only lasted two seasons, but the rap on that was Maria Bamford was like, I don't really want to make any more of this. And the fact that like that was kind of given the space to grow and animation has a reputation. Again, we don't have the metrics, so we don't know how many people watch this. We also don't really know how much two converting costs, but the reputation is that animation does not cost as much as a live action show. And given that we just had, like, headlines that were, like, Netflix just burned, like, $125 million on Triple Frontier. It seems very weird to me that they would abruptly cancel a show that both critics liked, but also has a lot of talent relationships that they're clearly invested in. Would you in. take season two of Tuca and Birdie if it was set in the Triple Frontier universe? Oh, my God. I would give anything <laughs> to watch Ali Wong interact with Ben Affleck. So, yes, give it to me now. <laughs> um, I guess the one thing we should mention is that, and you, you were just saying before about, you know, Amazon does great press release. Uh, the Netflix thing was sort of compounded by the fact that a show that I'll, I think has almost universal approval rating, which is Big Mouth, and I adore Big Mouth. I actually like, really So do love, I. Yeah, was announced that they were going to do three more seasons of it, which is exactly what we're talking about. Is like they got themselves an animated hit. It's by all accounts loved by teens and teens at heart and like just pretty much anybody who's like, oh, I'm just going to watch a couple episodes of Big Mouth. And now they are setting that up to be almost not quite Simpsons-esque in its run, but by, you know, they'll have six seasons of it or at least five or six seasons of that once this deal is done. That's a significant amount of television hours put together. And I think that that was sort of like, well, why can't you show the same sort of deference to Tuca and Birdie? Yeah, or just a fraction of that investment just allocate for this show. Or even just be like, okay, we're only going to do three seasons of Two Converti and then it's over. But to to truncate it so early, I thought, was really tough. And then the fact that, like, just from a basic PR management perspective, I understand that, like, they want to, you know— center Big Mouth and promote its success, and I'm so happy that it's going to have additional seasons, but, like, read the room. Just, like, wait a few days before you're, like, we canceled this one, like, weird, sexual, inventive, absurd, obscene comedy, and then this other one that fills a very similar niche um, we were going to give, like, triple renewal to, and that was just— Again, like, I love Big Mouth. It feels very weird that I have, like, any negative emotions right. associated with this renewal. It's really just the timing. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's literally just, like, how Netflix is managing this. It's nothing to do with the show itself. <sighs> R.I.P. Tatuka and Birdie. Allison, 
anytime you want to come on and memorialize a show that you've lost, just you got to just avoid putting them in any kind of awards. Yeah, situation. I was about to say, don't say that. That's yeah. just like anticipating that everything I love is going to come to an end. Yeah, it will. Uh, just like for me. Allison, thank you so much for joining me today. We'll talk to you soon. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Luminary. Luminary is a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place you can listen to the newest show on the Ringer Podcast Network, Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99. This is definitely a podcast you can't miss. In 1999, a music festival took place in upstate New York that became a social experiment. There were riots, looting, and numerous assaults, and it was set to a soundtrack of the era's most aggressive rock bands. Incredibly, it was the third iteration of Woodstock, a festival known for peace, love, and hippie idealism. But Woodstock 99 revealed some hard truths behind the myths of the 1960s and the danger that nostalgia can engender. Along with Woodstock 99, Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative dynamic creators that you cannot find anywhere else, like our spinoff, The Rewatchables 1999. The Luminary app is free to download, and in addition to the can't-miss originals, you can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including this one. Whether you're into music, TV, film, comedy, sports, or more, Luminary has the right show for you. Check out Woodstock 99 and so much more only on Luminary. Get your first two months of Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash watch. After that, it's only $7.99 per month. That's luminary.link slash watch for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash watch. Cancel anytime. All right, so now I'm joined by the ringer's Kate Nibbs, one of my favorite ringer writers. And Kate, I don't even know if you've actually, I think you've been on the watch once maybe? I can't remember. I think you maybe came uh, on to recommend some stuff before. Yeah, it's been a while though. I'm happy to be back. Yeah, Kate is, whether she knows it or not, our Manson expert. Uh, Kate <laughs> oh is, wrote a great piece for the ringer last week called A Pre-Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Lesson on the Manson Family. And she is a self-described, maybe not expert, but at least the avatar for uh, murder fandom, I guess, or, you know, true crime fandom. And Kate's going to join us today to talk a little bit about some of the events that take place or don't take place in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Obviously, it is a spoiler discussion. So if you haven't seen the film yet, I would advise you to skip this section. Kate, how are you doing? And thank you for joining me. I'm doing great. Um, I'm happy to be here. It's a very grisly subject. But <laughs> yeah. It's one that I know a lot about. So I'm happy to share. So what would you describe? Were you already somebody who knew a lot or read a lot about the Manson murders before uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was even announced or something? Yes. Probably five or six years ago, I went through a major true crime spree. And I read a lot of books primarily I guess it probably about, should be like phase, right? Because spree sounds like you actually yeah, committed a bunch of crimes that were true. A yeah, phase. A phase, yeah. I read a lot of books about Ted Bundy and Charles Manson during that time. So I read uh, Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor of Charles Manson, wrote sort of the official account of the crimes in the trial called Helter Skelter. Then there was a really great biography by Jeff Gwynn, who also wrote a, a really great book on the Jonestown cult called Manson. Okay. And I just recently read this insane book called Chaos, Charles Manson, The CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, which came out last month by a journalist named Tom O'Neill, which I highly, highly recommend. Even though I'm not sure I believe everything that was in it, <laughs> it's very interesting. So this had already been an interest of mine, certainly, before before the movie was announced. How legit is the O'Neill book? Because I, I remember when True Detective Season 3 came out, I bought, like, you know, I bought, like, Remembering Satan by Lawrence Wright, and that felt really mm -hmm. on the level. But then there was some more out-there texts that I, I think I bought, like, from far reaches of Amazon <laughs> that I'm not mm -hmm. really sure how legit they were. So, I mean— the book was co-written by a New Yorker writer, and it was apparently thoroughly fact-checked. And it doesn't actually make any definitive claims. It more just lays out a lot of evidence that the official narrative about the Manson murders is, at the very least, incomplete and, at the very worst, a complete cover-up for okay. a Manchurian, like— Basically, the book suggests that Charles Manson was a CIA asset. Okay. <laughs> Which is part of the, I think, appeal of this time period mm -hmm. and of this case in general is the, 
this mythology that's kind of come up around it and like the rumor that masquerades is fact and fact masquerading is rumor, which then kind of leads us perfectly into Tarantino's treatment of the story. I -hmm. suppose like anybody who knows his films well enough would, would probably expect once they heard that this movie was being made that there might be some liberties taken with history. Did you have any issues with that part of like Quentin Tarantino kind of working in this alternative reality that he does Mm -hmm. with the film? No. So I, when I heard that it was about the Manson murders and that Margot Robbie was cast as Sharon Tate, I was expecting her to live. Mm -hmm. I wasn't exactly sure how it would all play out, but the fact that he created a, a fairy tale from this horror story and sort of flipped the violence on its head, the way in which he did it, just how, uh, like cartoonishly violent it was, was certainly a bit shocking. But the fact that that was a storyline he went for was expected and I think well executed. I I thought it was respectful of Sharon Tate and I I didn't find it exploitative or upsetting. I, I thought it was nice. I thought it was surprisingly tender. Yeah, I mean, I, I ultimately felt like what it was was sort of... Uh his own version of, of of justice for somebody, of doing justice mm-hmm. for somebody who who didn't have a chance to to go on and make probably have the life that he thought that she should have had. I wonder whether or not, uh, it, as the movie kind of winds down and we get into the blow-by-blow, hour-by-hour version of the last night, what would be the last night of her life in reality, but in the world of this movie, is just one of the most, obviously, tumultuous night, nights of her life. And we kind of get into that. Uh, what, what was like your kind of like? Was your heart racing? Was your pulse going up? Did you kind of like? Were you like, I can't believe I'm going to watch this sort of play out. This thing that I've been reading about for years. Yes, I mean, even though I was hoping and expecting him not to kill Sharon Tate, that was obviously always a possibility. And in the film, you come to like her character so much, and then you also know that she was a real person. So uh, there, I was scared. I also thought that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino does a really good job of sort of laying out this nostalgic vision of L.A., but having these creepy Manson characters on the edges, sort Mm -hmm. of infusing the whole thing with a sense of dread. And I felt the dread build up in me until the climax actually happened. Yeah, I was talking a little bit about this with Sean and Amanda about on the big picture, about how I felt like that was— I didn't know that 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 had been remarked upon enough was the way in which, especially once Cliff goes to Spawn Ranch, you start to feel like there is a darkness that's just sort of beyond the horizon that's coming closer and closer, not only to Mm -hmm. the characters, but to America. And I Mm -hmm. thought that was completely uh, fascinating to watch him interact with that, that idea. And especially since I think it's something that a lot of people feel now. Totally. And when... Cliff went to the Spawn Ranch. I was very concerned for his character because yeah. the Manson family killed a stuntman. It wasn't one of their most famous crimes, but they they killed a stuntman. And the guy, Clem, one of the, the Manson family men that Cliff ends up beating up in that scene, in real life, he killed a different stuntman. So I wasn't sure whether we were going to see him die there since it it seemed like they were drawing from that historic incident. That really ramped up the tension for me. And, yeah, I was on the edge of my seat. Yeah. Some of the p- things you wrote about in your piece for The Ringer that I thought were really interesting was some of the other characters that we didn't actually get to see much of, but that you seemed very fascinated of about, uh, specifically Dennis Wilson, uh, which who is a, obviously a member of the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson's brother, I believe, right? And also yes. uh, quite a solo artist in his own right. But I was curious if you could talk a little bit about that element of the story and and Manson's sort of interaction with the music business in the late 60s like that. Yeah, I feel like that gets pushed off to the side a lot and people don't realize exactly how entrenched Manson was with some pretty powerful people within the music industry. So Dennis Wilson, the brother of Brian Wilson, uh, as you said, he he was a great artist. He played the drums for the Beach Boys. He ended up, he he picked up some Manson girls while they were hitchhiking, um, I think around 1968 or maybe 67, and he really joined the family, and he had them all stay at his house for a period of time. They were taking a lot of money from him, um, and 
he didn't seem to he let it go on for months and months eventually he he asked them to leave and they went to spawn ranch but he was really a part of that community and he he introduced charles manson to the music producer terry melcher who was the son of doris day dating uh candace bergen the actress Mm -hmm. and he that's like how that's how tate ended up getting mixed up in the whole thing was that melcher and bergen uh, gave their rental house to Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski when they moved elsewhere. And um, that that may be one of the reasons why the, the Manson family decided to target that house. But so Manson was very good friends with um, Dennis Wilson. Also, the that book, Chaos, one of the things that uh, – Tom O'Neill, the journalist who wrote it, did was he went and interviewed Terry Melcher a lot. And it, he actually does find pretty hard evidence that Melcher was a lot more involved with the Manson family than he had let on. In terms of like just like hosting them or was like integrated yeah. into the actual rituals and stuff like that? So the book claims that Melcher went back to Spawn Ranch after the murders took place, which is very notable because what he told prosecutors and the public was that he barely knew Charles Manson and he he only met him the one time that and that he had just taken his like the one him turning down him recording him as and and made it into like a death wish yeah yeah so that might not be the whole story we don't we don't know for sure but there the argument that the book makes is pretty compelling that Melcher knew a lot more than he let on and was much more integrated into the community and Dennis Wilson was very distraught after these murders happened. He felt culpable. He had a really sad life after after that, actually. Like, he sort of descended into substance use issues and ended up dying relatively young. Uh, So it's quite... I mean, the whole story is obviously incredibly sad already, but that's like another sad coda and another example of how there's a lot of ripple effects um, yeah, when, from violence like this. When I read about the the stuff in your piece and whatever reading I've done about L.A. at that time period, and, you know, that that's sort of like the spine of Joan Didion's The White Album kind of revolves around California at that time. Mm-hmm. I uh, I'm always fascinated by how some of the community behaviors like everybody left their doors unlocked and like neighbors knew neighbors and people would just kind of pass through and that kind of you know story that we tell ourselves about America after World War II or just before Vietnam and how some of those behaviors were still intact but that it it just seemed to take on a much more darker overtone you know like Mm -hmm. you would maybe your doors were open but you never know who was walking through them one day it could be somebody like Charles Manson it's just it's a really interesting collision of of sort of um like community behavior. Yeah, I think that the Manson murders ended up having a pretty widespread effect on how people, what people needed to do to feel safe in their homes. And the idea that you could be put upon, like the idea that random violence could occur because this was right as the murder rates were starting to rise in American cities and they kept rising for several decades. So it was sort of the beginning of a much more paranoid or I guess not paranoid because they're rightly so afraid it's the beginning of a much more frightened period of of American life and this is a period that they get into in the Netflix show Mindhunter which is obviously one of my favorite shows that's on right now and I, I don't know Kate have you had a chance to watch Mindhunter I watched the first season and I'm looking forward to the second because I know that Charles Manson is like rumored to be a yes, character. I think that they they it's it's actually the same actor <laughs> who plays him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood plays him in Mindhunter, uh, Damon Harriman, and that thing you're describing basically the rise of seemingly random violence in America during this time period and and Manson being kind of this figurehead for that is something that Mindhunter gets into a little bit in season one where they show his slide up on the wall when they're doing a, a presentation for a local police department. The two FBI agents, played by Holt McElhinney and, and Jonathan Groff, do a, a presentation. And then I think that they're going to start to sort of get a little closer to the source in the second season. So it should be really interesting to see this this conversation play itself out on, in that second season. Yeah, I'm so curious how they're going to choose to portray Manson because in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even though it's the same actor, he barely shows up. Like, he's... He's really a cameo. 
he just says a few lines and that's it. So he, his presence is more felt off screen. Yeah. And it seems like Mindhunter is going to make him into more of a character. And yeah, I'm interested to see how they do it. Yeah, well, we'll have to have you back on once Mindhunter Season 2 comes out in a couple of weeks. Kate, thank you so much for calling in. Thanks. So now I'm joined by my buddy Lindsay Zolads from New York City, one of the Ringer's culture writers. And Lindsay is here to talk to me a little bit about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and a little bit about 1999 Music Week, which is a big theme week we've got going on the Ringer. And you can listen to pods and watch videos and check out this really awesome special build we did for the lists we did. We ranked the albums and we ranked the singles from the year. I contributed some. Though, I, you know, Lindsay, it's funny with the with 1999 music, I was thinking about you and I was like, I bet Lindsay agrees with me about this. I bet Lindsay agrees <laughs> with me about this. But then I like sometimes I think that like I just because I've been reading you for so long, I just automatically assume you're exactly my age. And it's kind of like, do you ever see Die Hard? I assume you've seen oh, Die Hard. Oh, yeah, yeah. So in Die Hard, when the guy's like, just like fucking Saigon, hey, Slick. And the other person, <laughs> the other guy's like, I was in junior high, dickhead. Yeah. I kind of feel like sometimes I'm like, yeah, hey, remember fucking Fugazi, Lindsay? And you're like, yeah, not quite. You're like, Yeah. Um, I mean, I was in junior high in 1999. So there you go. Uh, and you were in Saigon. I, yeah, I, was, I was in Boston, but it was pretty similar. <laughs> we'll talk about 99 Music Week in a second, but I wanted to talk All to you right. a little bit about your awesome piece on The Ringer today, a very thoughtful, like sort of 360 look at the movie and how I'm, your different reactions to it. And I wanted to touch on two. One is sort of the broader one, which I, I think has been kind of like you articulated it really well, which is about the idea of basically like going to see something and having it not be like life or death consequences or it means the world or even your take on it is like somehow says something about you that like the the idea of ambient entertainment and ironically something that's such an event like a Quentin Tarantino movie functioning is that a little bit is that a fair read on where you were going with that yeah i just i found it to be a movie that I really didn't think it wanted you to think too hard about what it was trying to say, which made it sort of difficult to write about from any sort of critical perspective because I found it to be sort of baked into the the world of the movie that at the end of the day, there was a value in like light entertainment and it, you know, was kind of just the glory of this bygone aesthetic and this this world of sort of fluffy westerns that weren't as like consequential as the things that came after it sure if that makes sense yeah. so um yeah but I, I it was a movie that I enjoyed watching quite a bit while I was in the theater I had a good time at the movies I laughed um I looked at my watch a couple times in the the middle I would say but um I think the more I thought about it in the following days after seeing it, the less substantive it felt to me. Which, again, like you say, is not... I think there's a value for that, and I think part of the movie is trying to present the the glory of that sort of entertainment. But I just... For, for it to be a really sharp and incisive look at the Hollywood machine, I just didn't find it to completely hold together in that way. Right. And I think that it, it, you get into an interesting discussion about whether or not, like, what counts as substance. Like, if it is a fully enveloping, fully realized world in a lot of ways. And, I, and you did touch on this. Like, you talked about the last shot in the movie, and you've talked about a little bit about the idea of almost watching, wanting that God's eye angle to be a little bit wider and a little bit more panoramic. But if you enjoy the world in which it's set, you can look overlook maybe draggy parts or parts that don't make much sense or parts that you're kind of like, why is this in here? I think that there are other obviously issues where it's, I think some people have been really turned off by some of the uh, plot points and obviously some of the way he readdresses history. We could talk about that if you'd like. I thought that you were really like, really, very, you were very convincing in your argument about what was bothering you about the movie without being like, kind of hitting me over the head with it. But do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I quoted in the piece there is in the um, the Ringer podcast that everyone should listen to that that Amy is doing with uh, Quentin. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino's future presentation. Yeah, I believe that's right. I got it. Got it. First try. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, <laughs> but there was a they were talking about Jackie Brown on the first episode, and and Tarantino made this comment that you know Jackie Brown I think has like the exact same runtime as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which also feels kind of this sprawling 
um, the sprawling shape of a movie that really doesn't have the epic scale of of the tone and the plot of like what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And they felt to me like kindred spirits in that way. He described on the podcast Jackie Brown as as a hangout movie was how he conceived of it. Of just like if you like these characters, you're gonna want to hang out with them and watch this movie every couple of years and you know, just spend time in their universe. And I think, at least with the stuff with DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, that felt to me what he was trying to do here. And you do, there's, you have a fun time just, like, riffing with these guys and watching them watch TV and and hang out with the dog. And, you know, I think it works well on that level. But there are just these little moments that kind of rupture that, feel good time and and one of them that I think has been the most controversial aspect or one of them is this passing aside that Brad Pitt's character may or may not have killed his wife right. and it's kind of played for laughs in a way it's it's not um the most sensitively drawn portrait of sure <laughs> of yeah. this wife and and we don't really go back to that at all so there there are just these suggestions around the edge of the universe where there is this kind of violence against women or a moral code that maybe is not up to like the biggest uh, or the sharpest scrutiny that I just found like I wanted the movie to really think through what it was trying to say there rather than play that off as an aside because it just I found it very jarring. Yeah and I think that some when I read your piece the thing I thought about was what what it would have been like if any other actor aside for Pitt was in the role. You know like it's to some extent his performance is so great in as Cliff in the movie, but it, I think you almost, so much of the time you're spent watching the movie is also engaging in the stardom of Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and their actual oh, yeah. biographies. And I think that that winds up being the one part that I think they could have like explored more. I, I took it when it first happened to be one of those myths that are kind of hanging around a person that mm-hmm. and and then but they do do a cutaway that kind of goes into what may or may not have happened between him and his wife and it, it it's it's left kind of as like an ellipsis and you don't really know what happened and then it doesn't wind up getting called back again other than it's it's more used as a like this is why this guy's career is where it's at so, because where he's just driving around Rick Dalton yeah rather than this is what kind of guy he is because by then you've already kind of been seduced by this character into just thinking like He's the cool guy behind the scenes in this movie. Like, and Brad Pitt is so charismatic and so funny in this movie. It's he's really far and away for me the best part. And like Brad Pitt smoking an acid-dipped cigarette <laughs> is like I feel like it's the best like drug trip scene in a movie since the Wolf of Wall Street Quaaludes thing, which yes. also shout out to Leo. <laughs> yeah. um, it's like on that level for it's just so good. Um, but then yeah, like the I wanted to fully enjoy those sort of lighthearted moments of it and, and kind of be along for the ride. And then there were again just like things that take you out of it. I think even the the presence of Roman Polanski in this movie is, you know, you can't do the the Sharon Tate story without having him there. But the movie didn't really seem to know what to do with some of the more troubling aspects of the story on the periphery. Like he really did Tarantino's trying to turn the Manson murders into this fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And in no sense, even if you invert what happened, I don't think it's that simple. I mean, I was thinking about when you, after reading your piece, I was thinking about the differences between this and Bastard. So, I mean, obviously, like, mm-hmm. Tarantino's been pretty explicit linking this movie to Jackie Brown in terms of, like, you're saying a hangout movie. It's also a movie about people who are entering a different phase of their lives and maybe trying to hang on to some past glories while also reckoning with getting older. But with Bastards, the mission of Bastards is laid out very early in the movie. These people want to kill Hitler, right? Mm -hmm. Like, And you kind of see their motivations or whatever. But it's interesting how Sharon and the Mansons are like, it's more of a breadcrumb trail than it is a mission, you know? Um, And in some ways, I think it was easier to read Bastards than it is to read Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, I found Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, obviously, like, deeply, deeply affecting, but I also understand, like, I I think that there's, like, something about the way in which it lays out its its alternative timelines it should be quite distinct from the way he did it in Bastards. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like you said, you know, I, something I thought was really interesting 
about this movie is we only see Charles Manson once in really in passing. And yeah. you kind of have to piece together that it's him. And it's real the villains insofar as they're framed in the movie are more the followers of Manson and and the people who particularly young women who are just sort of blindly following him and and get in the depiction of in this movie sort of almost like snowballed into committing these murders or mm-hmm. at least trying to. And that felt like an interesting choice to me. And I think I I was not like I think the the critiques that I've read and talked to people um, about of this movie through women in particular that that just you know felt some type of way about various parts of this movie. I I know some people were bothered by the violence against the Manson girls at the end. Yeah, I was kind of expecting that, and I was not like that wasn't the most troubling part of it to me. But I do think I think Alison Herman brought up this point at some point in the exit survey or something where, you know, the the Manson girls were not the same as Nazis per se. Like to kind of give that catharsis. Yeah. I mean I think um, there's like kind of one ending for a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. 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 And especially one that is playing with the history. Like I think as soon as I realized, okay, Sharon Tate's not gonna die in this. It was both kind of thrilling to know he was going to be playing with the historical record like that, but also just like, okay, well, there's only one way that this can go, and these guys are going to be unlikely heroes and and stop the Manson murders from happening. And I just, I think, too, like, I needed the ending to go a little bit farther after, like, I wanted to know what else doesn't happen in California in 1969 sure. if the Manson murders don't. Like, that feels like a a tipping point where just you could jump off from there of, of different different ways that the culture then could have gone if he's kind of seeing it as this like two hours from... and 40 minutes is a weird thing where you're like I almost want this to be five hours you know like, yeah <laughs> yeah once upon a time in Hollywood part two yeah the, 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 the swing in 70s yeah. um one of the things in this movie does really well is uh depict a relationship to popular culture that obviously is very is treasured by Tarantino. And that is Mm -hmm. his relationship to the radio um, and how Mm -hmm. you would just get in a car and you would be in your car all day because you were living in Los Angeles and that's how people got around. And you would have it on one station and you would listen through the commercials and you would just let it rock all day long. And also when you got home, you would immediately turn the television on and the TV was on one of a couple channels and you would just kind of have whatever was on at the time. And even though there's a lot of ambient sort of under like an undercurrent of entertainment entertainment in all of that it felt more did you think it felt more friendly than it does today where 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 I think it's a little bit more like obviously addictive what we're doing to our bodies and our minds Mm. you know what I mean yeah yeah well there's the I, I think that as it was at that time, like the the sort of mainstream culture is used as a bridge between all these really different characters, and that they're all going to go home that night and watch FBI yeah. on w- one of three broadcast channels that exist, and we kind of see Bruce Stern's character and Dakota Fanning. Shout out <laughs> Dakota Fanning, yeah, just coming through. Like they have plans to watch that show that night, and so do Cliff and Rick. And these people that have so other, like, so little in common in every other way are all linked by this monoculture that still exists in that sense. And and it did feel, I, I thought that was weaved through really well, um, just as this ambient fuzz in the background of everything um, that, that went to show, too, the, the stature that someone like Rick would have in a time like that where his show was one of the only shows on that night. Do you have equally fond memories for the way in which you sort of interacted with music in 1999? I guess that is my segue. Amazing bridge there. It's <laughs> really good. Um, wow. Yeah, I guess I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, way. obviously, if you were in junior high at the time, I would imagine at least, were you were were you aware of stuff like Sleater Kinney and Bonnie Pins Billy, which are two of the artists you wrote about in the albums list? Or were you more pop music, what's on the radio, what's on MTV? Yeah, I I came to, like, Slater Kinney and, and more indie rock type stuff a few years after that. I was 13 in 1999. 
So I was, I think, probably the most important record in my life that year was Blink-182's Enema of the State. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a frequently cited That was where board. I was yeah. at. Yeah. And, you know, but I, it's interesting. So I think some of the records that I was writing about on this list or voted for, I came to later after the fact. And then some were ones that I have this sentimental attachment to because even though, like, my critical instincts weren't as, as sharp as they would become or, like, my taste wasn't as discerning, that I think when you're voting on something like this, what you were actually listening to that year is going to weigh heavily as oh, well. Sure. It's it's a yeah. surreal thing to, to think about 20 years after the fact because it's half a sort of memory game and and just associated with all sorts of memories in your life. And then kind of looking at it, but like, what is the best? Yeah, was I mean, Mambo that's... number five, really the best. Right, song, exactly. But it's like, there was, this is also like a, sort of a crucial moment. Uh, the next, from 99 to, I don't even know when, when it really starts up, but like, this is sort of the, the dawn of poptimism too, right? Because mm. it's like a lot of these artists, and poptimism is this idea that basically that, um, what would used to used to be considered bubblegum pop or corporate, you know, music made by major labels and, you know, made by whether some you would call it teeny boppers or or like, just basically like singers rather than songwriters, and that that was somehow looked down upon by the critical establishment. And then poptimism was like, no, there's like incredible artistic merit and value to pop music that you hear on the radio. And there was sort of this clash of sensibilities that happened in the beginning of the 21st century in music criticism. And that also is like kind of like a very interesting moment to be getting into music criticism at that time because there was sort of a, a an argument happening about whether or yeah. not Britney Spears or Mogwai was better. Yeah. And I, I tend to think of like 99, anything pre-Napster and even like pre-9-11, I think was the last moment before that really happened, that reckoning. Because I when I was putting this list together and reading through um, the list as it is on the site today, like, I I feel like this is the last moment where there was that division between rock yeah. and pop. And I even, in my experience, being 13 years old, I very much, you know, um, shout out Y100, Philadelphia <laughs> yeah. area, rest in peace. But, like, I listened to the alternative rock station instead of the pop station when I was 13 and thought that was, like, a cool lifestyle choice that yes. somehow marked me as different, which is, like, such a foreign concept today. Um, but then, of course, like, I liked pop music, too, and I, you couldn't avoid something like the Backstreet Boys or Britney Spears in that time. So there was sort of a grudging appreciation that I had. But it, the funny thing to look back on for me is I was, again, really into Blink-182 at that time, and I think... I thought that was something that made me, like, not pop. But when I look back, I'm like, no, they were my boy band. Oh, that yeah. Even the way that I, that my fandom for them um, manifested, like, I that was my boy band. <laughs> and even it like, just, as an in indicator of, like, how the carousel comes around now is, like, Blink at that time period are considered, like, expert tunesmiths, you know, and, like, these, yeah. these sort of, like, pop geniuses in a lot of ways. Yeah, whereas I'm sure that would have really pissed me off when I was, like, 13 and yet still voting for them on TRL. Yes. So, like, anything outside of that. Oh, yes, I did vote on TRL, too. I remember, like, they would have the scroll at the bottom of the show with the videos, and I would always watch to see if my comments would come up. They never did. But oh, man. It, it's fine. What it, is, it. is 2019 Lindsay Zolad's favorite album of 1999, Fiona Apple? Um... It's close, shockingly no. But okay. I, my number one, I went with Blur's Thirteen. Okay. Um, not only because I was thirteen in nineteen ninety nine, but oh. that one to me no, is really not for a cute reason. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, that one to me like felt like a bridge between how I experienced music then and now. Like something that I don't know that I heard that record in ninety nine. But I definitely knew who Blur were, and I had the self-titled record, which was kind of the first big Blur record in the States that had the Woohoo song, yeah. of course. So I think for me, when I think about music in 1999, 
and the way that this idea of like the new millennium and the Y2K scare was just informing so much of culture that year, there was this sense that it was this like culmination of something and that even the music was building towards some kind of apocalypse in some sense or another, just the idea of like the end of the century. Yeah. And for me, like in terms of, I think the that Blur record is the perfect encapsulation of like the end of the 90s alt-rock era and just trying to do something huge and arty and blowing up the whole idea of that as like a band that, you know, at least stateside got famous off a alt-rock one-hit wonder right. type deal. And then just making this huge statement album that's just incredibly sad. <laughs> yeah, and it was reckoning with the fact that they were essentially like the biggest band in Britain and were, you know, a novelty in America. Well, I mean, exactly. not to us, but yeah. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me today on The Watch. We'll have to have you on again soon, if not for anything, just to come up with another diehard quote that sums up uh, <laughs> some of our it. relationship. Okay, thank you so much, <laughs> Lindsay. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> 